Man, Jay, Malice sure gets around. It's kind of her thing, Miles. You'd think people would catch on at some point, though. Like, that there'd be warnings about the necklace with a face that possesses you. I don't think that would really make much difference. As we saw with Polaris, Malice can attach herself to her victims without their consent, and the Choker isn't even her only means of transition, just the classic one. Wait, how else can you catch Malice? Sneezing? Unprotected sex? Opening an email attachment? What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 260 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to Tragedy and Convolution, two of our favorite X-Men topics. Also our superhero codenames. Oh man, I guess, which of us would be which? Oh, I'm definitely Convolution. Tragedy? I mean... I do like a good, sad story. Got really into Torchwood. Never saw the final season, though. My partner Anna said that I should just pretend it didn't exist, and I trust her. But for now, this is not a podcast about Torchwood in the least. This is a podcast about books that mostly start with X. And the roulette wheel has led us this time to X Factor. Previously on X Factor, tragedy and convolution, basically. Pretty much that, from the start. I mean, whether it was the original five X-Men during their run for the first 70 issues, or the new government-sponsored team in their run, lots of tragedy and lots of convolution. I do kind of feel like X-Factor's tagline for every, really every generation of it should be, you tried. Right? Oh, that would really fit the Madrox Investigations uh, lineup as well, wouldn't it? It fits all of them, seriously. <laughs> well, before we get into how X-Factor is trying this time around, maybe we should talk a little bit about how they tried last time around. By which I mean, you know, for the last couple story arcs. Alright. Like many of the other X-teams at this point, X-Factor, the U.S. government-sponsored mutant team, is bleeding members. Now, they still have Havoc, Alex Summers, their plasma-blasting reluctant leader— they also have Polaris, Lorna Dane, Magneto's on-again, off-again daughter, with amazing power and amazing hair, who's basically the actual leader of the team. And who lately has been hunted by government agents, like, a couple times. We then have Strong Guy, Guido Caracella, the impact-absorbing, super-strong jokester. And Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, the former New Mutant and teenage werewolf who's recently um, regained the ability to return to her fully human form. Leading them-ish is Forge, their tech wizard, ponytail aficionado, and government liaison. They've also been hanging out with a morphing mercenary mutant named Random, who's basically an unofficial member at this point. He's an independent contractor who's working with them pretty closely, and in fact was briefly one of the government goons trying to kill Polaris before turning to the X-Factor side. You may have noticed a sad gap in the lineup we just described, because Jamie Madrox, the multiple man as of recently was dying of the legacy virus, Strife's mutant targeting an apparently universally fatal AIDS allegory. And at this point, has in fact died. Because the team had met an Indian spiritual leader named Haven, who was convinced the world would become a paradise only after a massive tragedy, and figured she might as well accelerate the other to accelerate the one. But she didn't seem all bad. After all, she cured Wolfsbane of her genetically implanted obsession with Havoc and enabled Wolfsbane to shift out of her wolf form without becoming a mindless slave. She was also a pretty effective inspirational speaker. So, the dying Jamie Madrox, just about to finally succumb to the legacy virus, asked Haven to help him the way that she'd helped Wolfsbane. Didn't work. And Jamie died. So that sucks. And that leads us directly into X-Factor number 101, Afterlives. Given the numbering, I feel like we should be doing a basic introduction to the concept of X-Factor sort of at entry level. In a way, this issue kind of is, though. I mean, as much as it is the denouement to the storyline where Jamie died, what we get is each character's reaction to that death, and I think we get a very good picture of who all these people are. In a way, this is almost as good insight into the characters' psychologies as X-Factor number 87 was. Speaking of very good pictures, at this point, the regular series artist is Jan Dursima, um, the writer's Jam Dematis, who's, who's fine. Dematis is very good. Dursima is terrific. And here uh, she is inked by Al Milgram and colored by Glynis Oliver. So 
Madrox is dead, and this issue, as Miles mentioned, is mostly about the intersecting ways a lot of people are processing and reacting to that death. And I'm going to get to the X-Factor team a little bit later, but first, let's say hi to the guest stars this issue. Um, straight over from, from the main X teams are Storm Professor X and Moira McTaggart. The latter is an addition that I'm really, really glad to see here, because something that people tend to forget is that Jamie lived on Muir Island for a really, really long time. Yeah, as much as we didn't see a lot of his presence there, aside from being essentially Moira's butler, I mean, there was very little detail revealed about what he did with Moira, but in terms of real time, he was a resident of Muir Island working with Dr. McTaggart from 1977 to 1991. I mean, to be fair, he was out of publication for a while during that. Right, so we can just assume he was there, like, I don't know, bottling, but multiply. Yeah, she has a lot of feelings about this, and she's really genuinely grieving for him, and also facing an even more complex situation that his death is bringing up for reasons that they're not going to go into in this arc, but are going to come up very soon. Professor X's way of trying to be supportive is to pull a bunch of memories from Moira's head, which is wildly invasive and which scene actually really upset me. It's really weird because this happens a couple times in the issues we're going to be talking about today, and each time it happens, the people whose minds are non-consensually invaded don't really seem to mind at all. It seems like J.M. DeMattis has a different take on what ethical telepathy is in the Marvel Universe than, say, Chris Claremont did. In DeMattis' writing, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal as long as the telepath's intentions are good. Well, in this case... I can sort of hand wave it just because these are two people who know each other very, very, very well. Um, but she doesn't actually react terrifically well. She eventually asks him to to stop and just let her leave her alone. It is a sweet scene, though, in a way, because we see some of those images from Moira's head of Jamie, yeah. of him painting, of him playing the guitar, of him just being this multifaceted person that we really seldom got to see, of him being who he was alone, who he was when he wasn't putting on a show, when he wasn't desperate for attention. And I think it's kind of appropriate that the only time we get behind Jamie's mask is when he's no longer alive to construct that mask. Agreed wholeheartedly. And what this does, and I think what what Mora's memories really, really underline, is that instead of being someone who was sort of fractured and, and uncentered, Jamie's powers were were basically manifestations of someone who was pretty well-balanced and multifaceted. I think this is how you handle the aftermath of a death in fiction well. You have the tragedy of the death, of course, but then you just give the reader, give the viewer, give the whatever a chance to really get to know the parts of that character that are now gone. I think we really got that with uh, actually Doug Ramsey's death and the issue where Warlock animates his body and walks him around. And we get that here in a decidedly much less horrifying, gruesome way. Yeah, marginally, marginally less macabre. Um, Storm is along too, and she mostly seems to have, have, have joined the trip to get some quality alone time with Forge, which they get in X-Factor's fancy new holodeck. And speaking of that that relationship and sort of relationships that have evolved, I really like where these two have landed, sort of in, in intersecting orbits, where they're not really together, but they come together pretty regularly, and, and the connection still exists, and they can still sort of go back to it when they want to and when it happens to fall in line with the paths they're already on. Yeah, I mean, Forge seems to have finally backed off, which is good because he was a super douchebag for a long time. But honestly, I think almost losing his relationship with Aurora, having everything go so far south, that seems to have matured him a little bit. Like, he's a character who I'm okay being with being in charge of X-Factor, and I'm okay with him being a romantic interest for a character as amazing as Aurora. Like, Forge in this era, I think, is Forge at his best. I like that he's not a romantic interest. He's a romantic intersection. That's a really different thing. That's a good point, yeah, because they do have that intense romantic and, it seems, sexual connection, but they're both very much their own people. And like you said, they have their own spheres, they have their own things that they do. Forge grows his ponytail and wears tiny shorts. Aurora gets fallen in love with by various villains and yells out the names of her mutant abilities. It's great. Oh, speaking of Jay, so I talked a couple episodes to Lisa Winters about the Spider-Man Beast crossover, Mutant Agenda, right? Yes, excellent. So one thing that I forgot to bring up in the episode is that in the animated adaptation from the Spider-Man cartoon, 
they get the original X-Men voice actors, of course, and there's this one scene where Storm does her whole wind sweep away my foes or something like that. And Spider-Man in response just says, spider webs, get sticky. And it's delightful. I mean, everyone needs a battle cry. <laughs> right? But I really like Storm here. I also really like Storm's interaction with Polaris in this issue because we get a little bit of that. And those are two characters we haven't seen together very much at all over the years. Oh, you're absolutely right. I'm trying to remember whether they've ever actually been on the same team, and I don't know that they have. Yeah, and they're a great contrast for one another because they're both, you know, the powerful women of their respective teams, sure. So I think, you know, on a very, very, very surface level, people could put them in the same category, but their personalities contrast so hard. Uh, they also can both fly and both have a lot of really cool hair. Very true as well. But there's a great bit of dialogue here as Storm is talking about how, you know, when she merges with the elements, when she uses her power, she really does believe that everything is connected and everything has an underlying purpose. And that makes her feel good about Jamie's death. And I love Polaris's response to that. I wish I could believe that, Storm. But this world feels all too real to me. And Jamie, it doesn't feel like he's passed into something huge and sacred. It just feels like he's gone. I love how unpretentious Polaris is. I love how down-to-earth and raw she is when she's written at her best. Whether it's this, whether it's the gifted, maybe not so much in the Silver Age, but, you know, Silver Age. But that's who Polaris is. You know, she's not this over-the-top, incredibly—I mean, she is incredibly powerful, of course, but that's not her personality. Her personality is very much that of a person, a smart, perceptive vulnerable, strong person in a way that I don't think we often see with a lot of superheroes. She's very, very self-aware. She's very, very competent. And she's very emotionally competent as well as, you know, tactically and, and superpowersly competent. You know, we always complain about how in the modern era, basically everything after, you know, the, the big Claremont run, Rachel Summers was never written all that well. Okay, after the Davis run. I gotta say, like, after this run of X-Factor, we just don't get a lot of Polaris, and that makes me sad. I hope we see a heightened role for her soon. I mean, she's not in any of the new lineups in the next era of X-Men, but there's so much potential there. Yeah, I think Dematis' Polaris might be my favorite Polaris from the comics, at least up to this point. You know, that's something I've noticed about this run in general. I went into it remembering it was the sort of okay run that comes after Peter David, but it's really, really growing on me. Like, by this point, by this issue, Dematis' run is one of my, my favorites of this era. Well, that's the thing. Like, with Peter David's run, it kind it's Peter David's run. It feels like the, the center of the run is Peter David's voice, and it's Peter David as author. And Dematis breaks the characters away from that sort of almost forcedly patter um, in, in ways that give them some room to breathe and some room to really differentiate. I totally agree, yeah. And, oh man, speaking of characters that have room to breathe and that work so, so well, freaking Guido and Rain, who've become one of my favorite friendships in the entire X-Men universe, past, present, or future. Likewise, so much, which honestly, God, makes the stuff that happens with them in... I guess the most recent-ish X-Factor, that much more heart-wrenching. Oh, in the Hell on Earth War? God, seriously, and we're still yeah, seeing repercussions yeah. of that. Although I guess they're both technically dead right now. Eh, we'll see how long that lasts. It's complicated. Very much so. But yeah, Guido's all joking around, and one of the things I love that Jan Dersima does here is she draws him smiling, but with this immense plastered-on, almost like plastic mask grin that never, ever, ever slips until when he's joking around and lifting Rain up and dancing around with her, until she calls him on it saying, Dude, Jamie was your best friend. What are you doing? Just stop for a second. And there's this one panel of his face just still and silent, and that mouth is so much smaller because his face is always very cartoony, it's always very expansive, and he just looks like a person. He doesn't have that mask anymore, and we see that so seldom with Guido. And in response, we see Rain, who shifted into her wolf form out of anger, suddenly shift back into her half-human form, and she just looks so guilty. And I guess they both realize that they've kind of each stepped over a line. I, you know, I've talked about liking Dersima's art, and she doesn't quite have Larry Stroman's 
intensely dynamic cartooniness, but she's got a degree of it that I think has been missing from the book recently. And Strong Guy is definitely the character in whom that's most directly manifest. Oh, it's so good. But the tension, thankfully, is interrupted by a couple of kids who are very excited to be meeting celebrities, and Guido just dives right in. I'm America's greatest champion, Captain Capitalism, and this is my dumb but loyal sidekick, Plucky the Girl Wonder. We've both been in suspended animation since 1908, but we're feeling much better now, thank you. Maybe you recall my famous battle cry, which gave hope to freedom lovers everywhere during the dark days of the Granada invasion? For mother, country, and the Dow Jones Industrials! And Dursima's reign is also just absolutely wonderful. She's just, she's bright. And some of that, some of that is, is, is Glynis Oliver's co- uh, colors, but the two of them together just give, you know, she looks and feels young in ways that she kind of hasn't in a while. And that's the thing. This is rain from before. That's something that I really appreciate that this era does, is after all the shit Haven did, and after all the characters being furious with her, there's this nice subtle bit where she cured Rain, and as we see every time Rain appears after she's cured by Haven, she really did cure Rain. This is the old Rain Sinclair. This is the irrepressibly innocent, light-hearted, optimistic, faithful Rain Sinclair that we did not see for the entire time she had that Genosian programming going on. Now, all of these guys were at Madrox's funeral, but there was one member of of X-Factor who couldn't bring himself to go, and that is Alex Summers, the team's leader, um, Havoc. And he headed instead to a diner to do what Summers boys do best, which is to collapse into a heap of self-doubt. Yeah, he's a Summers through and through. Also, like most Summers, though, he can't catch a break because he happened to just choose the diner that was going to get mugged. And Havoc is really wrestling pretty directly with the fact that he's a character in the Marvel Universe, and specifically in a world where there's a correlation between power and responsibility, because he's got these powers that he doesn't want, that he's got mostly under control, but that are still massively destructive, and that that have, for all of his life, yanked him away from the things he cared about, and forced him to do and be something that he isn't comfortable with and that has now gotten one of his best friends for whom he was responsible killed. And in fact, he decides not to intervene because he's worried he'll just make things worse. He decides that, yeah, he should just let the diner give all their money to the robber and let the robber leave. And that works great until the robber decides to keep the waitress he's got a gun to the head of as a hostage. And that is when Havoc snaps. Why'd you do it? Why'd you have to put me in this position? You think I want to be a hero? You think I want the responsibility? I never wanted it. Never. But no matter how many times I try to walk away, people like you keep dragging me back. Back to the violence and the hatred and the death, and I am sick of it. Yeah, like that time that Havoc and Polaris were about to graduate and then a shark fell out of the sky on them. Uh, but, But seriously... That does keep happening. I mean, even in Havoc's first freaking appearance where he was just a normal college student until an archaeologist uh, tried to suck all the powers out of Alex to turn himself into a big pharaoh dude. Yeah, it's that, that that's rough. And this is, this is conflict that's been building for a while and that he's been coming back to periodically for a pretty long time. Like, Alex is the guy who just wants to have a life and keeps on getting pulled and sucked into X-Men stuff out of a combination of vague sense of responsibility and absolutely crap luck, which honestly is part of why I buy the Rosenberg, like, exhausted beyond giving a fuck happy-go-lucky havoc. The perpetually five o'clock shadowed Alex Summers. Slightly manic and just kind of blazes ahead. Yeah. And at this point, Alex is just done. He's been at this point of frustration and fury before a number of times, but this time he's frustrated and he's lost a friend because of a situation he got into that there was no right answer to, and yet he still blames himself for. And Alex makes a decision. I never wanted this gig. Blowing a bugle and leading the troops off to war just isn't my style. But I believed X-Factor could make a difference in the world. I believed in the dream. It's a good dream, I think. 
I hope Charles and the others keep trying to make it a reality. But as far as I'm concerned, the dream is over. And Alex is done. He quits X-Factor. He should tell them that he's quitting. What he actually does is drop his ID in the snow and then fuck off to Hawaii for a while. But, um, that's going to be irrelevant, at least for the time being. I assume he tells them. I mean, by the time the next issue rolls around, they know. Maybe he, uh, well, he's an ex-character, so he probably wouldn't have made a phone call or even a video phone call. I don't know. Maybe he went to Hawaii and blew something up with his plasma powers, and they just said, oh, that's probably Alex. I guess he quit. They mention him being on leave. They don't mention that he's quit. Okay. Well, regardless, he's not part of the book anymore, and the team is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They're so little. So cute. It could just be a matter of perspective. Maybe they're very far away. Um, maybe Magneto and Captain America will get in a fight over them. I always love thinking about that story about Magneto and Cap fighting over the world's tiniest man because Cap wants to be a good housekeeper for him and Magneto wants to put him into a tiny little UFO in case there are any weapons inside. God, they're weird. It was the Bronze Age, but I don't know. It's like the Silver Age and the Bronze Age had the weirdest baby ever and it was that story. Well then... Anyway, let's instead go not from not to the story about the world's tiniest man, but instead to <laughs> instead to X Factor number one hundred two, the Polaris plot, which is about a plot started by the world's tiniest man. No, if, it's not. If only. And uh, this is written by J M Dematis, penciled by Jan Darsima, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Matt Webb. And it's time to solve the mystery of why some government people tried to kill Polaris or at least appeared to have tried to kill Polaris. And Random is here, as part of a deal he discussed with X-Factor in a previous issue, to let them know who hired him, to take Polaris and X-Factor to the doorstep of the folks that tried to get Lorna killed. In exchange for that assistance, he's getting a fair lot of money and a new car to replace the one that Polaris wrecked. <laughs> the one that Polaris smashed into Random like three times in a row. In self-defense. I know, it was just very thorough self-defense, and I appreciate that about Lorna. I appreciate a lot of things about Lorna. Also, Random's durable. Very durable, and definitely a dick. Also, yeah, significantly more durable than his car. Turns out. Now, it turns out that the people who hired Random are working under the front of Beltway Travel, and working for them under that front are none other than... Avalanche and Crimson Commando, remember these guys? Oh yeah, I mean, Avalanche has been in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants for ages, he then went to Freedom Force. Crimson Commando, who now just goes by Commando since he got turned into a badass cyborg that I think Eric Larson was planning to have on this run of X-Factor when Eric Larson was going to write. Anyway, Commando was one of the murder grandpas back in the day, and now he's a boring red cyborg. He's still Crimson, I don't get why he had to get rid of that part of his name. I mean, maybe he felt like it was redundant. Although, if somebody was red-green colorblind, the word in the name would really help. Yeah, see, this is this is just, there's, there's a lot I don't really understand here. Now, these guys aren't really central to the story. They are actually just muscle for a fellow named Colonel Malone, who knows how to make an entrance. Welcome to Beltway Travel, X-Factor. It'll be our pleasure to book you a one-way ticket to your graves! This is as close as we're ever going to get to X-Factor, Welcome to Die. It basically is. I really love the fact that in comic books, some villains understand that they're villains, and they're like, all right, villains got a villain. What kind of villain speeches can I do? Like, I'm surprised this guy is wearing a suit instead of a big dramatic cape. Well, it's, it's a sort of vaguely sinister suit. I mean, suits are sinister. This is the 90s. This is X-Files era. Yeah, that's true. I mean, basically everyone in a suit in the X-Files had some kind of ulterior motive. I mean, basically everyone not in a suit also did. Literally everyone in the X-Files had an ulterior motive, including the protagonists. Now, Malone is a, a good government man, I guess, kind of. He and Forge go back a while. They don't like each other. Everyone fights until someone named Connors shows up in a helicopter to yell at Malone, at which point Malone shoots himself in the head for no apparent reason. Yeah, like he says something about how, I guess there's no room for men like us in the world anymore. And I'm like, wait, did, did we miss something, Malone? Like, Malone, did you have that conversation in your head and just assume that you said it? Because we see your thought bubbles, or at least we would if there were any, since it's a comic book, and there was nothing about that. It's 
pretty weird. I mean, earlier in the issue, to be fair, he is talking to Connors and she mentions, hey, do what you got to do, but we're going to disavow all knowledge. So I guess he figured that since he got beaten in combat and the government wasn't going to have his back, therefore he was just totally fucked. I don't know. Connors comes down to explain at least a little bit of it. This is Beatrice Connors, and she runs, quote-unquote, the department, which department is never clarified. Now, um, what the department does, however, is something called the Polaris Project. The idea behind this is connected to the Magneto Protocols. And the idea was that Polaris, because she's got similar powers, might be able to be a failsafe against Magneto if he went evil again. But apparently Malone, the recently deceased suit-wearing sinister man, but not capital S sinister, just lowercase sinister, was an anti-mutant bigot, and so he wanted to capture Polaris, brainwash her, and use her as a weapon for, you know, department stuff. I feel like, A, there's got to be a happy medium between these, but B, couldn't they have just talked to her about this? I mean, she's already working for the government, you know? Like... And she doesn't like her dad very much, and I think at this point Magneto is her dad? I can never remember when they're related and when they're not in continuity. I don't think they're related at this point. Okay, well, regardless, she's probably still pretty mad at him because of that time that a robot pretending to be him made her put on a silly costume and got her involved with the X-Men. Comics! Oh, the Silver Age. I love it so much. So, I guess that plot thread is done with the bullet that Malone just put into himself, but we do have a couple of twists. First of all, like we alluded to, Connors totally knew this was going on. She, t- she tells X-Factor that Malone was acting alone, she had nothing to do with it, but that earlier scene in the issue, we see a phone conversation from Malone's end where it's very clear she was behind this step, too. She also wanted Polaris to be a weapon. Was Connors really the one who put Malone up to it, though? We know it was her body. But we also find out toward the end of the issue that she wasn't acting independently. Specifically, she's possessed by Malice at this point. Remember Malice? The marauder who used to work for Mr. Sinister and tends to possess people and make them super evil versions of themselves? The Malice who rode around in Polaris' body for like a super long time? And subsequently became fairly obsessed with Polaris. Yeah, so she's back, and given that one of Polaris's hobbies these days, every time anybody's fighting her for any reason, is to talk about how she's been controlled before and she'll never be controlled again, yeah, that's, uh, that's gonna get pretty interesting. She'll try. Yup. We do have a few other plot threads here outside of the Polaris plot, which conveniently labels itself. Although they're also Polaris-centric, um... So Lorna continues to connect with Random, who she's whom she's been sort of trying to make friends with, and who turns out to actually not be nearly as bloodthirsty as he makes himself out to be. Specifically, while he presents himself as an assassin and bounty hunter, he's killed a total of three people, and all of those were in circumstances where it was the only way to save innocent lives. Oh, Random, you're just a big, gooey, gray, tattooed teddy bear. Big, gooey, gray, tattooed teddy bear who kills people in defense. Right. I mean, that's a very specific character archetype, but uh, I think Jack London, that was one of his, right? Like, big gooey gray teddy bear who kills people in self-defense versus nature? The place I was going to go with this involves specifically a dog who's disemboweled a human and rolled around in their their innards in order to stay warm, and and its subsequent coloration and also, you know, the self-defense inherent to that act. So yeah, I'm going to say yes. Oh, Jack London, you were a dark dude. Yeah, nature, man. Red in tooth and claw. Well, speaking of things that were not red, but, uh, gray, at one point we have a nice little timestamp pop culture reference here, just like Peter David used to love. We have Random being very impressed with Polaris's power book. That's right, she has an Apple power book. Now, I looked it up, and the power book 500 series actually came out the same month as this specific issue. It was the first laptop Apple put out that had stereo speakers, a trackpad, and a built-in Ethernet port. So that's pretty cool. But then again, Polaris works for the government, and I can't imagine them moving nearly that quickly. So probably she has an older power book. As far as I know, the Library of Congress catalog still uses DOS, so... Actually, I was talking to our librarian friend Claire about that earlier today, and she confirmed that, uh, yes, they do, but they're trying. Aw. Wait, which librarian friend Claire? Uh, the, uh, not the children's librarian. The uh, adult librarian, I guess? The one who helped us with the goose information. Yes, exactly. 
Listeners, we do in fact know two librarians named Claire. They're both pretty great. They are. They're both wonderful. Anyway, Guido, in the meantime, is hanging out with Xavier and Storm, who are still there. And he's joking around, doing his thing, and coming on way too strong. Because he's super nervous. At this point, even though he started out very cynical toward X-everything, he was just in it for a paycheck, he is totally bought in. This is his family, and he is awestruck. He is starstruck to be around Xavier and Aurora. Even when Xavier psychically tells him to lay off the puns. Yup. It's pretty adorable. And man, these characters have just grown so much since they were first thrown together. That's something that Alex actually mentions in the previous issue before getting super depressed, but it's so true. And the non-Alex Summers, non-deceased, non-Pietro members of the team, I think are doing, in some ways, the best they ever have in their lives. I mean, in a general sense, they did just lose one of their best friends. Well, right, like in an internal, individual, personality, identity sense. We also get, you know, a, a farewell. Um, Zerain says goodbye to Mara, and they reconnect after having having clashed pretty intensely. Um, and I think we get the first hint that Moira might have the legacy virus here. Wait a minute, did I just totally miss that? I didn't catch that at all. It's when she and, and Rain are saying goodbye, and Moira says, I don't remember the exact line, but there's an aside where she, she says she hopes she sees Rain again, and insinuates that it needs to be soon because she might not have that long. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know if they'd planned Moira to be infected already at this point in the plot, but if so, that is some impressively subtle foreshadowing. But I really do love that we get this reunion. I really do love that after, I think it was X-Factor number 90, where Rain and Moira had this huge conflict and Moira was really cold, even though Rain was going through all that shit with the Genosian genetic programming. And so now it's nice that J.M. DeMattis says, whoa, okay, A, I'm going to remember that Moira and Madrox were close. I'm going to give some resolution to that. And B, I'm going to basically do a fix-it fix for this whole thing. I'm going to remember that Moira and Rain are super close, and maybe we shouldn't have them, like, be horrible to each other for no goddamn reason. And it's really heartwarming, because I've always loved the relationship between Moira McTaggart and Wolfsbane. That was the first scene we ever saw Wolfsbane in. It was Moira protecting Rain from one of those European mobs that seems to wander around, you know, when the weather gets nice. And it's good that we still have that continuity, especially since, as you alluded to, Jay, things are about to get really dark for Moira. That leads us to X-Factor Annual number 9, Contact. That's the first story in the annual, and it's written by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Matt Broom, inked by Steve Moncuse and Terry Austin, and colored by Glynis Oliver. Aw, punishment artist Matt Broom. You know, I gotta say, I know we haven't liked Broom's work in the past, but I don't mind it in this issue. I think it's fine, even if Astral Xavier is buffer than most bodybuilders. I have a lot of trouble with how sexualized and posed the female characters are in this. Yeah, there is some of that. I don't know, maybe I've just gotten so used to it from reading all these 90s comics. Miles, presenting like a mandrel. <laughs> yeah. So interestingly, this is actually the final X-Factor annual, number nine, because the next year, in 1995, both X-Factor and Excalibur will stop having annuals. That also means that Excalibur will only have ever gotten two, but it also also means that their last annual had Chaos, who we love very much. He's a good guy. He totally is. So this annual and this story actually takes place in the middle of X-Factor number 102, or I guess more toward the end, because the denouement scene of number 102 refers to the events of this annual. But honestly, that continuity bit doesn't matter at all, so we'll just talk about it now. Now, there are two plots to this annual. They go back and forth, they interleave, it's kind of interesting, but that would make for some very confusing and boring podcasting, so let's start out with the plot line involving most of the members of X-Factor. That is X-Factor and Professor Power. I mean, the storyline doesn't actually have a name, but uh, I just like saying Professor Power as much as possible, so Jay, I salute you for adding in an opportunity to do so just now. I mean... I am likewise fond of Professor Power. I love villains and characters in general who have Professor in their title because it implies a very specific profession. And the idea that that this guy in, in his full cyborg gear goes to, you know, the local community college or whatever and, and teaches super villainy 101 or, I don't know, European history or something really makes me happy. 
I know, yeah. I choose to assume that all of the doctors and professors and captains and whatever in the Marvel Universe actually have earned those titles. They haven't just chosen them. The the outrageous professor names or doctor names also always remind me of one of my favorite foibles of autocorrect. So my dad's name is Aaron, but it's spelled atypically. And for a while, autocorrect would do its best to change it to arson. Um... <laughs> And my dad is a college professor, and he has he has a doctorate, and and so the idea that that inevitable at some point if he ever goes full supervillain, he's just going to be Professor Arson. Arson Edidin, that's amazing. Well, Professor Arson. Either way, oh, that's great. Anyway, we'll get to Professor Power um, in ways that don't just involve his name. I don't think he's related to the Power Pack, by the way. That's uh, that's their last name too. But I'd imagine there are a lot of people in the Marvel Universe, especially the Marvel Universe, with a last name Power. Although most faculty at the college where he teaches go by their first name, so he'd probably just go by Arson. Oh, it's a little more casual that way. A little friendlier. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, in this story that does not involve Arson, Forge brings X-Factor, the extremely abbreviated X-Factor team of Strong Guy, Wolfsbane, and We Need More People Random, on a top-secret mission to help S.H.I.E.L.D. guard a mysterious canister. I do really like the fact that their perpetual temp is literally named Random. I know! I also just love the fact that a character who seemingly started out as a Lobo parody has actually become this complex, nuanced core member of the cast, and I kind of love him. Yeah, he's, he's definitely grown on me. So, they are, they are helping uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. guard a, a canister, and its contents remain a mystery, uh, which of course, Strong Guy cannot help but riff upon. Hitler's brain? Kennedy's clone? Shannon Doherty's press agent? Wah, wah. They've also been tasked to work with a openly, angrily anti-mutant lady named Agent Daniels, who doesn't want the help of no stinking muties, and she is super rude to everybody, like aggressively, deliberately, delightedly rude. Also, I'm pretty sure she makes fun of Rain's accent, but because it's comics, I can't tell whether she's making fun of Rain's accent or is supposed to have a similar accent. Didn't your mother ever teach you simple manners, Miss Daniels? I, lassie, she did. And I can be exceedingly polite when I'm dealing with human beings. Wow. I mean, she's almost comically terrible. Except, not really, because there are totally people like that, and... Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I was gonna say, this is definitely one of those weeks when mutants as a metaphor feel more frustrating and fraught than usual, given current events. <sighs> yeah. Well, uh, on the upside, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s driver for this mission, a guy named Chuck Rose, is pretty great. He's starstruck and very complimentary toward Guido, who's a talk show celebrity by this point, and he charmingly flirts with a very receptive Wolfsbane. This is the part where where um, I feel like the art jumps the shark in some really bad ways. Like, there is a panel where... Yeah, it, it's just it's just pretty not okay. Yeah, yeah, but... uh. Chuck's nice, at least, so there's that. So, yeah, but he's going to turn out to be a villain, so... Well, at least he's a nice villain. I mean, I guess. He's still a villain. Well, anyway, before we find that out, the team of rapscallions with all of their delightful racist banter uh, drives and begins the mission, but it doesn't take too long for the truck to get zapped and nearly explode by a hulking android with bright yellow skin. Maybe it's from The Simpsons. This was... 1994. Oh, that reminds me. So my mother was looking for those pictures of me dressed as Skeletor, right? From a few episodes back. Right. So she actually found some other pictures of me as a kid. And there's this one of me at like 10 years old with this awful early 90s mullet playing the X-Men arcade game next to a much older kid also playing it with me. I have no idea who this kid is, but we're both wearing neon Simpsons t-shirts because in the early and mid 90s, like that's just what you did. You just had Bart Simpson on your shirt and that's all there was to it. Not me. Oh, well, uh, I think you missed out on an important part of the early to mid-90s. I was a child unstuck in time. Eh, well, so it goes. So, anyway, this bright yellow cyborg was just a diversion to distract everyone from the hovering, disembodied consciousness of Professor Power, who wanted to go into the canister's contents, which were a body he wanted to possess. 
Okay, the cyborg, though. Like, this this guy has Liefeld thighs. He has those those amazingly, like, over-muscled, but also foreshortened because of position legs. And it's like, were the 90s just one long leg day? I think they basically were. Although, I don't know, I mean, they do specifically say that this is an android, not a cyborg. So this yellow person does not need to be bound by the feeble laws of human anatomy. Or, you know, like you said, maybe just every day is leg day. I mean, he's still less ripped than Cable. Yeah, or Xavier in his astral form, but we'll get to that. So let's talk about Professor Power. Professor Power's been around for a long time, and he's always been linked to the X-Men, but this is actually the first X-Book proper he's ever been in. There was this old Marvel team-up story where Professor Power's son was all traumatized from a war and was sort of vegetative, and he asked Xavier to cure his son using his telepathy, but Professor Power got impatient, and so he had the villain uh, Mentallo, I want to say, sort of take over Xavier to accelerate things, and that didn't work. So Professor Power's son died, and then he blamed Xavier, and he just kept going after the mutants. His goal was to kill Xavier's children, you know, the X-Men and stuff, as revenge for Xavier killing his his own child. So this happened in a Defender story, a Spider-Man story. Most of these were actually written by Jam Dematis. Dematis seems to really like Professor Power. But yeah, it's taken this long for Professor Power to actually get into one of the books of the targets of his ire. I really feel like he should be a villain with more alliteration associated with him. Like, I don't know, um, Professor Power and his paranoid pyrokinetic Parrots. Penguins. Penguins or parrots. I mean, choose your avian, I guess. Penguins. That's probably better. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Maybe Professor Power's more interesting in other books. He's, he's totally not here, but that's fine. Anyway, the good guys are about to take him out with the help of Polaris, who was shadowing behind because she hadn't yet left to go find Alex. Paranoid parenting with Polaris and Professor Power. Nice. Perfect, in fact. But unfortunately, Chuck Rose, the nice guy who we alluded to being actually a villain, yeah, he holds a gun to Agent Daniels' head and says, let Professor Power go or I'm going to shoot this lady. Uncool. X-Factor tries to decide what to do. Agent Daniels is saying, no, I don't care if I live or die, you can't let this guy get away. And so when, invariably, Professor Power does get away, Daniels hates mutants even more because she's terrible. Yay. So why was Professor Power here? Well, the other half of this annual story will tell us all about that. So let's go to a story about Professor Xavier and, huh, Haven. And Professor Power. No, no, not really him. So this bit is really interesting because it's all from the perspective of Haven. All of the captions are her flowery font with a pink background that we've seen in her previous story. And... It's all that flowery verbiage, all of that soft, polite, considerate, intelligent, analytical dialogue that we've always gotten from her. I really like this font, by the way. This is a really good way to do handwritten captions. It's extremely legible. It clicks well with the art. It doesn't look either overly fake handwriting-y or, um, you know, overly fontified. And again, and importantly, it's very, very, very legible, but also easily distinguishable from the standard captions. Yeah, it works really well. And using this font, Haven, psychically with her, you know, ambiguous powers, watches Professor Xavier, who's having a sleepless night as he reads up on Haven. Xavier's very disturbed about what happened with Haven, not just Jamie Madrox's death, but her whole deal about, you know, trying to end the world for the sake of the common good. Yeah, that's a problem. And so as Xavier psychically probes the world to try to find Haven's mind... She pulls him into the misty and candlelit shores of oblivion. Hey, um, Jay, I was going to say, uh, Epica is actually opening for Camelot in their Shores of Oblivion tour. Um, I think they're coming to New York City if you want to see them. They're, uh, they're really good. I've seen them both before. You know, I would really love to, but I've actually already got tickets to see Professor Power's Piercing Piccolo. Oh, okay. Well, you, you don't want to miss that. They don't come around very often. No, no, it's, it's, um, it's pretty special. And Haven is apparently a big fan. Oh, Charles, I swear to God I'm not your enemy. I've drawn such inspiration from your work with the X-Men. Without your example, I would never have dared walk this path. 
I mean, that's just what anyone wants to hear. Without you, I would never have tried to end the world. And Xavier is indeed pretty pissed. Your path, Haven, is not mine. You belong with them. Magneto. Sinister. Apocalypse. No! No! Those monsters know only hate! You and I do what we do out of love for all mankind. Okay, um, I want to stop here for a moment because I think it's very important that we establish here that Charles Xavier's astral form is bafflingly ripped. He totally is! Seriously, like, you know, we've seen Cyclops get more buff in the 90s. He's gone from Slim Summers to I could probably bench press a truck Summers. But Xavier here, he's like the freaking juggernaut. That's the wrong brother, artist. And yet. And yet. So as a reminder, Haven's deal about ending the world, she believes, her religious beliefs tell her, that the Mahapralaya, this grand disaster, is necessary as a prerequisite for a future paradise. But before that Mahapralaya, like, there's going to be 700 years of suffering. So she figures, hey, bring about that little mini apocalypse. Now we skip the 700 years of suffering, we get to paradise sooner. That's less suffering overall. And when she says little mini-apocalypse, she does not mean Evan Sabiner. No, no, she doesn't. So Xavier asks her story. I mean, we know that she's been this new-agey speaker, that she was all charitable for a while, and then suddenly something changed, and she started preaching this whole deal about the Mahapralaya, and she tells him a little bit more about her background. Haven's parents were scholars and philanthropists who taught Haven to embrace all religions, that all religions were about love of God as expressed through love of man. But while they got their hands dirty helping the poor and the sick and the destitute and the oppressed, they kept her sheltered and safe. It turned out, though, that she, from an early age, was psychically sensitive to the pain and the poverty of the people around her, so she snuck out and started doing charitable, hands-on work herself. She even eventually founded a children's hospital that she named Haven, and it didn't take long for the kids who were at Haven to start calling her Haven, which is a little implausible, but uh, eh, whatever, let's just go with it. Maybe it was it was a hospital built around the premise of really, really vague pronoun references, so they actually just thought that was her name. That could very well be. But unfortunately, Haven being an awesome philanthropist who only did good and awesome things didn't last long because tragedy struck, as she puts it. But it all went so wrong when I met... His name doesn't matter. What matters is that I foolishly surrendered my heart to a man I hardly knew and began a love affair that distracted me from my true calling. I forgot the children, forgot everything except him losing myself in a profoundly selfish love. To be fair, dudes do in fact ruin everything. I tells ya. But this part fucking sucks. Like, I know Haven is jammed to Mattis' character, so, you know, yeah, I guess he can do whatever he wants, but essentially what we're seeing here is that Haven was amazing and perfect and great and did only good things and we love her very much, and then she had sex with a dude one time, and apparently it was all her fault, and then she started preaching the apocalypse. Like, this is basically narrative slut-shaming, and I am not here for it. No, it's not that she had sex with a dude, it's that she had feelings for a dude, and while this isn't narrative slut-shaming, it is still coming from kind of the same deeply, deeply sexist underpinnings, and fictional, and well, and cultural tropes in general. The idea that the highest calling and the highest order of attention on any woman's mind at any given time will be romance, and it will automatically eclipse any other work, mission, or personality. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that Haven is a mature, intelligent, immensely competent person. I feel like she could totally juggle doing charitable stuff and, like, having a dude. Yeah, or having a dude and trying to bring about the apocalypse, as it later happens. As the case may be. So, this is just so unfortunate, because I totally wanted more of Haven's backstory— But what I liked about her is that she was a very sympathetic character. Now the story is basically telling us, nuh-uh, she done fucked up. All of this is her fault. Is it? I think I'm drawing very different conclusions from yours to here. Um, Although it does go into an awkward, awkward direction um, involving the voice within capitalized like a name. Because... When she was at her lowest, when she was super guilty after this dude left her and she realized that she'd, you know, left her true calling, that's when the voice within started telling her about the Mahapralaya and how that was necessary. That was the turning point. 
Now, when most people talk about the voice within, they're speaking metaphorically. Haven is not. Um, and that's that's going to be the big twist at the end of this. But for now, Xavier, who isn't buying any of this, he's basically like, nope, you're a jerk. You killed a bunch of people. You killed Jamie Madrox. Screw you. He tries to force his way into her mind. And, you know, I got to say, as much as we talk about the ethics of telepathy, like if Xavier thinks she's really that bad, I can see him considering that an okay thing to do. But I appreciate that in this scene, she is the one that's being calm and kind and compassionate. And he is being an angry jerk. Like, it's kind of cool to see the good guy being an asshole and the bad guy being the seemingly reasonable one. Well, that's part of what makes Haven such an interesting and such an effective protagonist. She is entirely calm, she's entirely collected, and she's entirely convinced of her moral rectitude. Yeah, but rather than let Xavier into her mind, because she is in fact hiding something, she flees the shores of oblivion. Hopefully she remembered to get her hand stamped on the way out so she can gain re-entry later, I don't know. And Xavier is ejected back into his easy chair in X-Men HQ. He's learned what he needed to, though. At the last minute as Haven was leaving, he got her secret. Like we've been alluding to, the voice within? Yeah, it's literally a voice that is literally within. It turns out Haven herself is not a mutant. The fetus inside her, after she got pregnant from the dude that ruined everything, that fetus is a mutant. And part of its mutation is that it's stuck as a fetus, but it's been speaking to her from within her own body, telling her about all this world-ending stuff. And the voice within and Haven have collectively decided, reluctantly and sadly, that Xavier has to die in order for them to achieve their necessary goals. And that is why Professor Power and his pernicious poltergeists was unleashed to take out X-Factor. She basically threw Professor Power out there into the world, knowing that he would do everything he could to hunt down Xavier, especially now that he's finally in an X-Book. The voice within is later going to turn out to be the adversary. Yes, that adversary. Yeah, that'll come up later in Haven's final appearance ever. Like, it looks like it's setting her up to be an even more interesting villain here, but no, we get her for, like, a few panels in that big reveal later on, and that's it. And that's such a shame. Haven is such an intriguing, cool villain. And also, the high heels of her boots are snakes, and let's never forget that, because that's rad. Agreed. Now, there's a backup story in here, a much shorter one, and a much less dramatic one that's, um, called Cleaning House. It's by Matthew Friedman and Amy Meyer, penciled by Carrie Gamble, inked by Hilary Barda, and colored by Ashley Pozella. And it's just a nice little character piece about Guido going to clean out Jamie's room now that Jamie's dead. And he wants to do it on his own. He refuses Rain's company. And he's pretty much doing fine in his adorable lacy apron until he finds a matchbook from the bar that he went to with Jamie's dupes and cheerleading team while Jamie Prime was dying. And he turns on the TV to distract himself. But it's Looney Tunes, which is what he was watching when one of the angry dupes of Jamie punched the TV while Jamie was dying. And he finds the copy of Haven's book that was read by religious Jamie while Jamie was dying. He just keeps getting hit with this again and again. And he remembers his, his, the last time he saw Jamie dead. When I saw you lying there, part of me had the urge to hit you, to make a dupe pop out and tell me this whole thing was a joke, but there was no joke. And now there's no laughter. I guess you thought telling us about your disease would be a burden, so you had to turn to a stranger for help. And that same stranger killed him. And the rest of the team throughout X-Factor's headquarters just hears crashing, smashing, destructive noises, even from all the way across the building. And it's Wolfsbane who finds Guido kneeling with his head buried in his hands in the wreckage of Jamie's room. He has absolutely destroyed it. And she gives him a hug and they start to clean it up together. Man, these three issues, I think, are one of my favorite handlings of a major character death, at least up until this point in X-Men. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff after the death of Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix saga, certainly, but there's just so much nuance here. I, I love it. Yeah, I really especially like how differently the characters grieve. Exactly, yeah. So, well done, J.M. DeMattis. Thanks for making a run of X-Factor, which isn't even significant enough, according to, I guess, Marvel, to be on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, really, really good, and honestly, genuinely memorable. 
Marvel, get that on Unlimited. Come on. Yeah, seriously. Ideally, get everything we talk about on Unlimited. Are you there, Marvel? It's us, the people that are excited about your comics that have X's in their names. Wait, are, are we are we praying to Marvel instead of Neil Conan now? I mean, we can pray to both. We can be polytheists. I guess. Anyway, so a group of people, some of whom are probably polytheists, is our listeners, and they've got questions. Wow, that was that was quite a quite a choice, transition wise, man. I'm a master of segues. You and the Portland police. <laughs> yeah, well. Dan asks via email, There are always arguments about who is the most powerful mutant. My question is, what mutant uses their powers most cleverly, slash, to their full potential? This is inspired by things like Madrox getting on the other side of doors, Emma in Bobby's body, Cyclops' amazing understanding of geometry, etc. Man, um... I think Iceman tends to be the answer to this question a lot of the time. Um, a lot of the things that he's done over the years, and a lot of the things that he's done when he's really had control of his powers have been pretty great. Ice Wizard him, um, you know, the various ways that he's managed to make kind of animated ice sculptures and figures and golems. His, his team up with Nightcrawler and Curse of the Mutants um, involving Holy Water which was really delightful, and which, which Nightcrawler blessed him, and thus all of the ice he formed was holy water. Um, I'm also a really big fan of Quentin Quire's psychic shotgun. It's good times. Oh yeah, the idea that you can manifest a telepathic attack as a shotgun that people can only see because you're using your telepathy to give it a visible form. Well, no, it's, it's literally his answer to Psylocke's psychic knife. Pretty great. You know, it's kind of a boring answer, but I'm actually going to have to go with... Magneto. I mean, part of that is that he's been around for long enough that writers have had a chance to really think outside the magnetic box with his powers. So, you know, he does things like messing with the iron in the blood in people's brains in order to mind control them. He disrupts the Earth's electromagnetic field to cause a communications blackout. He can shut off gravity near him. At one point in Excalibur Volume 3, he creates a fucking wormhole. He can completely redefine magnetism. Exactly. Uh, of course, we can't forget the time he wrote Curse of Warnings in the Sky in the first issue of X-Men ever using iron filings. That was pretty delightful. But yeah, when you think about it, magnetism is such a ridiculously powerful force that somebody who's had multiple lifetimes, because remember, he got de-aged and then re-aged but only partially, would totally come up with awesome things to do with it. And by awesome, I mean often very dark and uh, evil. But still... These days, though, I would also have to say Nate Gray after some of the stuff that happened in Age of X-Men, but that's recent enough that I probably shouldn't spoil it, but uh, quite impressive. Oh yeah, that's, that's quite a thing. That said, I'm sure we're missing some awesome, awesome stuff. We uh, prepared for this episode a little bit last minute. So, listeners, what are your answers? Tell us in the comments on our website for this episode, or on social media, or whatever. I'm really curious to hear what people think. Yeah, agreed. Ryan asks via email, have you ever thought about doing a top 10 countdown of your favorite story arcs? Oh, Ryan, um, I, I hate doing top 10 lists so much. I, as, as a writer, I, I occasionally end up having to do them. And I got to say, the only thing I hate more than doing top 10 lists is the inevitable chorus of people who then track me down to inform me that I was wrong because I forgot their favorite story on my entirely and explicitly subjective list. Um, and some of that is that I, I just don't like ranking things too. So if I'm if I'm writing a listicle, if I'm I'm writing something, and I've written a lot of you know ten X Men stories worth checking out type articles, but they they they're generally and and specifically not top ten lists. And I have I have gotten in some pretty pretty protected fights with with editors over that. That said, if you really like story rankings. I recommend the hell out of the podcast Battle of the Atom. They put a really fun spin on that concept. They do it in a way that involves a lot of extended story discussion um, with, with kind of the rankings as, as an ongoing minigame in the background and, and conceit. Um, and if that's something you're into, um, and really even if it's not, um, you should check them out because they're, they're terrific. I also want to throw in a recommendation for Multiverse Q, which does the same thing with alternate universe stuff in the Marvel Universe. 
Me, I don't mind top tens. I actually think they're really fun. But the thing is, my opinions change, like, multiple times a day for that. Because I like X-Men for so many different reasons. I love the deliciously crunchy continuity, the family feels that it engenders, the the world sucks but we must protect it angst, the beautiful art, the cool fights. Like, X-Men is so multifaceted. It's been around for long enough. It's had so many different books that... You can have X-Men fulfill any number of needs or desires you have as a reader. And for me, each of those things is a priority at different times, at different moments. Sometimes what I really want is just the warm hug of a heartwarming story or just the absolute darkness of the world being terrible to the X-Men and them finding the will to soldier on or whatever. That said... As of this very second, if I had to pick a top 10, and again, this could change like five minutes from now, let's go for God Loves Man Kills, The Brood Saga, E is for Extinction, The Final Arc of Joss Whedon's Run, The Demon Bear Saga, Cable and X-Force by Dennis Hopeless, X-Men Season 1, The Asgardian Wars, The Trial of Magneto, and the second-to-last arc of All New Wolverine. There we go. As of 8.02pm on Monday, August 5th, as we record that, that is my top 10 list. Okay. (laughs) We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Today, of course, we shall hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. You wear that devil-may-care facade, Christian Smith, keeping the world at arm's length with a quip, a scowl, and no shortage of heavy artillery. But then, up strolled Dan Pack, persistent determined to go toe-to-toe with you, and smart enough to see that behind all those muscles, guns, and grimaces, you just wanted a friend. If only friendship were on the agenda, but Dan's got other plans for you. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be joined by special guest, writer Vita Ayala. For Jay and Miles, live at FlameCon. FlameCon.